0: Section 13 of The King of Sander by James Elroy Flecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 13 Re Coronation The world was made for kings. For him who works and working sings, come joy and majesty and power and steadfast love with royal wings. The preliminary interview with the notables succeeded beyond expectation. No sign of doubt was displayed anywhere, and the happy suggestion was made that a re-coronation should take place a few days later, to coincide with the great midsummer feast of San Adovani. Vorza, who had rolled up to the meeting in his superb state coach, was extremely deferential norman detained him after for a private interview ostentatiously dismissing even
1: sforelli alas said the king to him that so many years of helplessness have prevented me from a due appreciation of your entiring energies in the service of this realm be not afraid that i shall ever forget the old noble houses of Alsander. in you i know i can put my trust and i will begin this auspicious day by honouring a tried and faithful servant of my family and the nation this said
0: norman clapped his hands and an attendant entered carrying on a cushion a collar
1: set with pearls here are the insignia of the office of lord chamberlain continued the king which i found in an old safe tarnished with age and disuse this i put round your neck and make you master of my household i pray you now to arrange the procession i have made dr Sferelli my secretary consult with him if you will he knows all the details for the present continued the king confidentially i have need of sfarelli's services for the present he
0: added in a low voice with much insinuation vorza left the presence somewhat mollified but still suspicious after this preliminary interview following Sforelli's advice, Norman did not show himself abroad till the day of his re-coronation, and heard, like a man imprisoned, vague rumours of the stir outside. On the night of anticipation, the young king, for so he shall be styled in future, slept little, and, rising in the first grey of dawn, he muffled himself in a coat and stepped out unseen upon a lofty balcony to look out upon the waiting crowd. Down there, in the cold misty break of a day that promised relentless noontide sun, upturned faces were appealing stupidly for information to the granite castle walls. Weary men began to yawn and shuffle, and shifted the drowsy girls that slept upon their knees. Some were dozing on stools, others, seated on parapets, leaned back uncomfortably against the rusty lamp-posts. Others lay carelessly upon the pavement or on the pedestal of the statue of Credenda. Truly, thought Norman,
1: they will be stiff men to rule, these people of Alsander. Their heads are all the same shape.
0: The king was to step into his gilded coach in the company of Vorza and Sforelli. The guards had already cleared the roads with unprecedented valour, while the amazing coachman perched himself expectantly upon the box as if he had been born for the task, and indeed the doctor had even found the family in which the tradition ran of driving this curious vehicle. Norman, dressed in military uniform, at the appointed hour left the throne room, and with great solemnity was handed to his seat by the Lord Chamberlain, who then took his place in the royal coach. They left the castle yard amid a roar of enthusiasm, and moved slowly down the main street of the town towards the cathedral square. Such had ever been the processional route of the kings of Alsander. At last, the carriage stopped at the grand porch of the cathedral. There, after Norman had been robed in those same overpowering and sumptuous cloths of state that had been stripped from the unconscious Andrea, the ceremony of re took place. It proved to be an elaborate function, invented by an old-time bishop with a passion for symbolism and an eye for scenic effect. It consisted of appropriate ritual minutiae, as, for instance, the reanointing and replacing of the crown, which it would be tedious to describe in detail. But the closing scene of the service was superb. Norman raised himself from his knees and turned towards the people feeling his young body awkwardly stiff amid the heroic amplores of his purple robes, and, in a few sentences, promised to increase the glory of our sander, making no reference to the mad years gone by. Idle to reproduce those simple sentences, without the animate vision of that clear voice, and the humorous, handsome face with its brilliant blue eyes, without knowing that most wonderful of cathedrals whose byzantine mosaics seemed no less barbarous and splendid than the aristocracy expectant beneath whose jewels the hoard of feudal treasure chests glimmered and swayed dimly in the incense-laden choir and strange it was how when he made that speech the words of the boy rang true and sincere in the glory of the ceremony he forgot the shabby and grotesque conspiracy he became for a moment The King of Alsander. He meant the words he said. The afternoon was ushered in by a long procession of girls and youths. The girls carrying little pots, wherein grew wheat, cornflowers, and poppies. They passed in Indian file before the cathedral, and each fair girl that passed broke her pot against the door, in front of whose dinted panels soon grew a little mountain of sherds and earth and fading flowers and corn then they passed down to the riverside and the king followed them in state there they found themselves face to face with the young men of alsander many of them in that gorgeous national costume of which Arnolfo was so fond who had left them at the cathedral door and had run round the bridge and were already facing them on the opposite bank the youths threw off boots and socks if they were wearing them, and coats, if they possessed them. Neither did the girls fear to display their shapely feet. Men and maidens entered the stream, the men valiantly, the maids demurely, and then, dipping their hands in the water, they began splashing each other vigorously across the river. When all were soaked with water, many of the men swam over, seized a girl, and ducked her in the stream. This was held to be a most solemn betrothal. For in the meantime, the priests and the cathedral choir had assembled on the bridge, and young voices began to raise the old Latin hymn of the consecration of the waters, a hymn older than the cathedral of Alsander itself, one of the oldest hymns in the world. Swiftly the tumult was stilled, and all knelt by the shore. Raised on a platform behind the priests, stood the tall king. He did not seem to share the joy of all the others, and while they knelt, he shaded his eyes, but not for prayer. The first excitement of his adventure had passed. Seeing now all around him, in the clear and truthful sunlight, this mock revel given in his honour, and in honour of a lie, he felt a thief and a liar. There was no thrill of triumph in his heart for his achievement. His fellow conspirators had taken him into their farce as one might take a spectator from the stalls and dress him up for the role of king. In the farce, nothing mattered, honour or right or manhood. Now here was reality to face him. He was a king and an impostor. The amazing Arnolfo, whose fantasy and youth had given some poetry to the crude conspiracy, had deserted him. Women and the fair woman he had seen in the light of morning—was it a thousand years ago?—were lost to him for ever. As amid the joyous sunshine of that first morning, when he saw Alsander rise up above her meadows, when, afraid of the world's too deadly beauty, he had felt more lonely than ever in his life before, so now, when he had achieved this marvellous thing, now that he ruled the ancient fair and fabled city, he sank into utter desolation of the soul. And this time, no golden girl would chase the black phantom of sorrow from his soul. But as the great final major chords of the sumptuous old song rolled out above the river, new courage came to him. He could not go back. He could not justify himself ever at any time at all. He realized that the plot had irrevocably succeeded, and that he was a prisoner for ever. Nevermore would he tramp the joyful mountains. To no new country could he direct his steps. To his own country, and his own sweet village, Nevermore would he return. Love for women, the true free love of a boy, Henceforward he might never feel. Honest men he might never shake by the hand again. Severed from friends, and the sweet companions of youth, He must thenceforth talk with wise, or portentous, or aged men serious and sad he looked at the beautiful city shining above the shining river he saw new visions thought out new ideas of a bitter and spartan taste for a boy's sugared fancy his soul and his conscience his peace of mind his friends his love his youth he flung down as an offering to the city and like a man he swore to work End of chapter 13